in the words of Homer Simpson, Seasons greetings to one and all. Welcome to the special holiday edition of the Harrison Podcast. I'm your holly jolly host, Jerry Landry. On this episode, we're going to discuss the role of Christmas in early America, and what we find when we look at this historical record may surprise some of you. For this episode, I will be relying heavily on Penny Reestad's Christmas in America, A History. To start with, while we tend to idolize the holiday season as a time for folks to come together, the culture wars known in more recent times as the War on Christmas are in fact nothing new. Since its inception and proliferation in the first millennium AD, quote, the tensions between the folk and ecclesiastical qualities of the holy day did not ease, as its adoption by new cultures meant the adding of previous pagan or secular activities or practice to the tradition. And religious purists then used some of the same arguments of modern-day folks that the meaning of the season was being lost in the profane practices and, quote, pagan pleasures that were discouraged during the remainder of the year that had been adapted and adopted for the season. This brings us to the Puritans. By the time this Christian sect developed, Christmas had become associated with, quote, eating, dancing, singing, sporting, card-playing, and gambling. So the Puritans did away with Christmas altogether in their tradition. The Puritans, however, were not the only ones moving away from the Christmas tradition that had developed. England as a whole was beginning to see Christmas as a time for reflection rather than mirth. The dispute came over to the New World with English colonists, and with some in the colonial government, including John Winthrop of Massachusetts, even working to end the celebration of the holiday altogether. Celebrations persisted, though they would take different forms in different colonies, and Christmas itself was not overly important in society as a whole, as the way it was celebrated was so different depending on geography and cultural background. Noting the multitude of backgrounds of residents in places such as New Amsterdam, modern-day New York City, Raystad notes, quote, Numerous Christmases abounded, persisting as an expression of individual heritages. In Pennsylvania, quote, Quakers scorned Christmas as adamantly as Puritans did. Huguenots, Moravians, Dutch Reformed, and Anglicans, who also lived in the colony, all kept Christmas in their own way. One popular practice found in many of the colonies had its roots all the way back to Roman times. The common term for it was frolicking. Basically, it was a time of mirth. People would don disguises and roam about. Often folks, primarily men, would, quote, shoot off firecrackers and guns, parade it with musical instruments, call from house to house in garish disguise, and beg for food and drink. While some of this would occur in the southern colonies, Raystad notes that, quote, Virginians, Carolinians, and Marylanders especially enjoyed dancing, but also engaged in card-playing, cockfighting, nine-pins, similar to modern-day bowling, and horse racing. Anglicanism, the established religion in most of the planting colonies, did not pressure its members into sacred observance. Mostly in the southern colonies, it was seen as a period for rest and leisure. Raystad mentions what we know about two of the early presidents and their Christmas observances when she writes, quote, Thomas Jefferson rarely mentioned Christmas. George Washington frequently spent his holiday hunting and settling such year-end financial matters as renewing the terms of indenture for his servants and attending church. This is certainly a far cry from the colonial Christmas scene so often depicted and romanticized in the modern day, but oddly enough, apparently even that romanticization is not new. Even in colonial times, it seems that folks in England thought that people in the colonies, 
particularly in Virginia, had what we think of as the Christmas spirit. An article in the London Magazine of 1746 said as follows about Christmas in Virginia, quote, All over the colony, a universal hospitality reigns. Full tables and open doors, the kind salute, the generous detention, speak somewhat like the old roast beef ages of our forefathers. Strangers are fought after with greediness, as they pass the country, to be invited. Perhaps there was some truth to such depictions, but scenes of Christmas celebrations in early Massachusetts should be treated with even further skepticism, as the Massachusetts Bay General Court banned Christmas celebrations altogether in 1659, and this law would not be repealed until 1681, when the colony was pressured by the British government to do so. The Puritans in the colony would still continue to fight against Christmas well into the 18th century. The holiday would begin to take on more significance in America after the Revolution, as folks were attempting to develop a society for the new nation distinct from that of Britain. As noted by Raystad, quote, Revolutionary patriots revoked all official British holidays on the 13 colonial calendars, but did nothing to replace them. The process to develop holidays for the new nation would take time, as there was little precedent to follow in the American experiment. As a nation dedicated to religious freedom, quote, disestablishment eliminated many religious holidays and ensured that none would receive state sanction. Meanwhile, the diversity of the population, both in terms of cultural background and geographic isolation, kept any one tradition from being a good fit for becoming a national tradition. Raystad remarks that, quote, by the 1830s, a handful of holidays, New Year's, Thanksgiving, Independence Day, and Christmas, had emerged as nascent national celebrations on otherwise eclectic and diminished calendars. Even these now familiar days, Americans of the post-revolutionary era observed irregularly and with little ceremonial consistency. Indeed, observance in a single community might shift between enthusiasm and passivity over a stretch of years. British actress Fanny Kimball, who had visited America to perform, wrote in 1832 about the lack of holiday observances in the United States compared to Britain and asserted that, quote, Christmas Day is no religious day and hardly a holiday with them. In the same year, though, another British visitor, Harriet Martineau, was writing that she felt that Christmas trees would, quote, become one of the flourishing exotics of New England. A few years later, in 1837, Louisiana would become the first state to declare Christmas Day a legal holiday. The nation's expanding literary culture also helped spread the idea of the Christmas holiday as it, quote, made a perfect subject for countless news items, poems, stories, and illustrations. At first, these appeared only sporadically and during seemingly odd times of the year. However, within a relatively short period of time, the popular print media had consolidated an array of information about the festival's associations, emotions, and rituals into December issues. These ideas and practices were not just the province of white Americans. Numerous instances can be found in the historical record of celebrations by slaves in the South. What is recorded seems to get back to more of the idea of frolicking. Though noted in more detail in accounts from North Carolina, it seems that this is representative of practices throughout the South, even if they were not quite as involved in other geographies as they were in the Old North State. Quote, in North Carolina, a highly ritualized form of Christmas celebration developed among slaves. Disguising themselves, sometimes as animals, they danced, paraded, and begged for money or food. These rites were known as John Canoeing, John Canoeing, Coonering, 
or other related terms. Raystad notes that, quote, the origins of these rituals are not known. They may have first appeared in the Bahamas as an imitation of European colonial traditions, then spread to other slave domains such as North Carolina. One scholar argues that rather than being a cultural mutation, the John Canoe Festival came directly to the busy seaport of Wilmington, North Carolina, on slave ships arriving from the west coast of Africa. Focusing in on the period around 1840, we have to ask ourselves, what did the Christmas holiday look like at that point? For the answer to that, I'll turn to Raystad. Quote, During the first 40 years of the 19th century, Americans adopted and shaped Christmas celebrations that reflected a broadening sense of regional and cultural identity. At the same time, they elevated the holiday to new prominence. Beginning early in the 1840s and continuing through the Civil War and into the 1870s, Christmas underwent yet another transition. Similarities eclipsed differences, and the festival began to acquire a distinct profile as a national holiday. If you can imagine this, it seems that folks weren't bombarded by advertisements about the perfect holiday gift, mainly because folks hadn't decided when they should actually give gifts. Traditionally, going back to Roman times, gifts had been given for New Year rather than Christmas. The earliest recorded Christmas gift-giving in colonial America was in a community of German-Moravian immigrants in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, in 1745. The few advertisements that there were around the 1840 time period for gift-giving seem primarily to have advertised for the winter holidays, to encompass those that still gave for New Year's, as well as those who decided Christmas gifts were the way to go, and a contingent who went for option number three and did their gift-giving on St. Nicholas Day. Gift-giving at the time, however, wasn't always reciprocal. There are accounts both in the North and the South of games being played where either families or people of higher social status gave gifts to the first person who greeted the gift-giver, either in general or with a particular phrase. Reciprocating gift-giving was becoming more popular, though, with Rhysad noting the following possible reasons. Quote, the marketplace charged with an unprecedented abundance of goods and the money to buy them, played a crucial part in broadening the appeal of giving gifts. Equally powerful, however, was the importance the antebellum middle class played on the sanctity of home and family and the role that gifts played in promoting its ideals. Among this unstable connection between market exchange and family solidarity, Americans began to shape new meaning for old gift customs. Going back to Martineau's mention of Christmas trees for a moment, they were still a fad on the grove, both in Europe and the United States. It was primarily a German custom, but was growing in popularity in England, Denmark, and Norway, and was introduced in France around 1840. Likewise, German immigrants had brought the practice to the New World, so it could be found most prominently in German communities across the nation. Likewise, quote, often owing to the influence of German natives, Evergreens began to appear in the homes of prominent Bostonians, Philadelphians, New Yorkers, and residents of other cities during the 1830s and early 1840s. Even if there was no tree under which to place presents, though, children still prepared the night before Christmas for the arrival of Santa Claus. As noted by Raystad, quote, Preparation for Santa's arrival occupied considerable amounts of time in many households. As it's done now, in all parts of the nation, there are accounts of children hanging their stockings near the fireplace, on a bedpost or a banister, along staircases, or in one case, on a broomstick. Again, as now, 
children had trouble sleeping that night and would often lay with one eye open hoping to hear the sound of sleigh bells ringing through the air then eagerly woke up in the morning to run to wherever their stockings were hung to see what had been left for them as they hadn't been invented yet kids didn't find playstations or remote controlled toys or barbies waiting for them instead quote, children found oranges candies candles nuts toys gloves or other such trifles tucked in their stockings christmas in eighteen forty may not look exactly as we would expect and some traditions that those who celebrate christmas nowadays take as givens may have been seen as new innovations at the time but santa was still there bringing treats to good boys and girls around the world as the french saying goes plus ça change plus c'est la même chose the more things change the more they stay the same so what does all this mean and what have we learned from this episode for me one of the primary takeaways is greater understanding of the impact of holidays on establishing the nation in particular the impact of print culture on other aspects of american nationhood have been well examined but until i started researching for this episode i have to admit that i didn't think about it in the context of christmas or of the christmas holidays role in the theme of american nationhood even for students of history Certain aspects of our cultural heritage can go unquestioned until we start to peel back the layers and remind ourselves to not fall prey to the myth of immutability. Traditions can be strong and long-lasting, but they had their origins somewhere, and it's more likely than not what is now is not as it's always been. In our time, while there are a great many people who celebrate Christmas, there are also those who celebrate other holidays around this time of year. People of the Jewish faith celebrate Hanukkah. Muslims celebrate Malad al-Nabi, which is an observance of the birthday of Muhammad. People who practice paganism go back to traditional celebrations of Yule. And then there are some who don't celebrate anything besides having a day off of work. As a community of citizens and neighbors, our cultural practices are ever-changing. But I hope that one aspect of the holiday tradition doesn't change. Whether taking it from a secular or religious context, I hope that we can continue to look at this time of year as a good excuse to come together in peace, to break bread, talk, and be merry, and to enjoy one another's company. However you celebrate this time of year, I hope you have a very happy holidays. On our next episode, which falls on yet another holiday, we'll be discussing how early American presidents and the nation rung in the new year. Until then, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, or you just want to say hi, please feel free to email me at harrisonpodcast, all one word, at gmail.com or leave a message on the Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash harrisonpodcast, again, all one word. Show notes and past episodes can be found on the blog at whhpodcast.blueberry, that's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y dot com. And the podcast is available on iTunes and Stitcher. Until next time, Take care, dear listener.